We want to look at verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3 together today. To catch us up, Malachi, remember, he's the last of the prophets. 400 years of silence are coming. And so he's, he's the last guy. He's the last one to say a prophetic word. And what he has yet to say is kind of a mixed bag. And I don't mean that in a negative way in any sense, just that there's still warnings that he has to, to say, and there's still hope in what he has to say. There's still a call to repentance, and there's still a glimpse forward into the coming day of the Lord. And in our text for today, 13 through 18, he, he does outline two, two types of people, okay? Those who believe God and those who don't. Those who return to God and those who think that they've never left. Those who fear the Lord and those who pay him no attention and those who serve him and those who do not serve him. And so there's a mindset that's working hard right now in our culture to eliminate distinctions. What is a woman? What is a man? Is there a distinction here? What is a family? What is a marriage? What is love? Even who can pastor a church? Blurring the lines on distinctions in an attempt to be inclusive and not to offend some Christians, I, I unfortunately think, have taken a really nominal stance when it comes to distinctions, specifically what is right and wrong, what is biblical and unbiblical. We think we can't say this or say that, or we can't say that an action or a lifestyle of someone else is wrong because it might be hard for that person to hear, and we certainly don't want to come off as judgy. So we say nothing. So we let truth dwindle and take a back seat to comfort. But the truth is, and I want us to see this as we get started today, the truth is Jesus went to the cross because of a distinction. Okay, let me help us understand what I mean. I am sinful, marked by sin, and I have no hope of being right with God on on my own, by myself. That is a distinction. Perfection... Being good enough is here, and you and I, we're somewhere off the map, lower. That is a distinction. I am rightly condemned with no chance of fixing the problem on my own. That's a distinction. It's, it's a distinction that for me personally both broke my heart and saved it. And for those of you who are saved, it's the same thing. We were far from God, but through Christ we've been brought near. We were stained and marked by sin, but washed clean by his blood. We sing the song Amazing Grace, and that line in there talks about a vast distinction. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You can't be the same thing at the same time. It's one or the other, a distinction. See, distinctions are both clear and necessary for me to understand and believe the gospel. And it's the same for you guys. The gospel directly confronts my sinful actions and lifestyle. And if it doesn't, you know what? I'm not saved. If I can believe that I can receive the gospel of Jesus and be a Christian and not have my lifestyle be changed, I'm not saved. You can't be. See, I don't think churches or Christians individually are helping anyone by blurring the lines when it comes to these things because Christians are supposed to be the heralds of truth. Not feelings, though feelings can play into things, but heralds of truth. 
And truth is truth no matter what year it is, what culture it is, where you are, what you think, or how you feel. Truth is truth. And there are things that Christians and churches, we have to stand firm on without compromise. But there's something else that Christians can't compromise either. And it has to play an equal part in this conversation. Believers, you are called to take this message of life-saving life distinction and to proclaim it in love. And it seems like over the years and even in our culture now, we have a loud voice proclaiming truth and we have a loud voice proclaiming love, but we're not seeing a good, righteous, biblical blend of these things. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm, I'm pleading with you as the Spirit is pulling at me, proclaim the truth, stand firm, speak truth, but do it in love. Because see, our theology can be spot on, but if we don't have love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, nothing is gained. We gain nothing. Our viewpoint on important things like sexuality, marriage, the home, it may be right, but if we can only communicate it with loud shouts and angry tweets, we've gained nothing and no one will listen. So Christians and churches are uniquely positioned by God in the culture to bridge that gap between truth and love. And so we have to stand for truth and we have to do it in love. So we stand firm in a biblical way. And so that all leads us to our text today, Malachi three, thirteen through 18. We'll read this together and then ask the Lord's blessing. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Lord, if we look at what you've said, Old Testament and New Testament, we see a lot of distinctions. And they're kind of summed up here. Those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Those who serve you and those who do not serve you. And in that sense, Lord, this is very simple. Some of our youngest children in the room can understand this distinction. And yet as we grow older, Lord, in an attempt to pacify people and to be politically correct, we tend to minimize the distinctions. And we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So save us, Lord, from that, but also save us from being those who would stand without love. Lord, help us to keep a righteous balance so that when people see the truth both proclaimed from our mouth and lived out in our lives, Lord, that they would not be offended by our lives and by the, the way that we speak, but, Lord, they would be confronted with truth and recognize it as 
real reality that we find in your word. Uh, Break our hearts in this today, if needed, Lord, so that we can share the truth in love. And Lord, maybe more importantly for us listening right now, that you might make this distinction very clear so that we are confirmed of our salvation or not, so that you might be glorified in all of these things. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Last week we studied Malachi's words regarding how our hearts and how our money are intimately connected. Okay, Remember, God's not all about the money. But how we use what he's given us is a gauge of what's going on in our hearts. So Jason had a a, a tire gauge that tells you what the pressure is of your tire. That's important because if it's too low, you can get flat. If it's too high, it can explode. Those sorts of things. Our, Our checkbook, our bank account, our receipts are that gauge for our hearts of whether God has it or not. And remember, too... The people of Israel who were being spoken to directly here, their problem wasn't necessarily just a financial one. It was a spiritual one, right? Uh, They didn't believe God. They didn't trust him. It came out in their lack of generosity. So incredibly, and, and I would say graciously, God says, put me to the test. Test me in this. See if you can outgive me, is what he says. Well, spoiler alert, they couldn't. You can't either. And so the message is still the same. God says, test me in this. He says, trust me in this. And watch what happens as a result. Now this message is caring and empathetic, even even lenient to a degree, but I think his tone changes a little bit in 13. Look at what he says. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Can any of you remember another time in the Old Testament especially where this was said of the people of God? There may be a, several um, things that come to mind. Psalm 95, 8 and 9 came to my mind. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So the psalmist there is is pleading with the people he's writing to. He's saying, don't be like your fathers who tested the Lord. Their words were hard and bitter and argumentative. And there, in that situation that's referenced in Psalm 95, I mean, there were serious consequences regarding seeing the promised land as a result of what happened in all of that. Well, now in Malachi, look at chapter 3, verse 10. God tells his people, right, put me to the test. But at Meribah, it wasn't the kind of test that God was referring to. They tested God another way. Kind of the way that a child complains and acts out in rebellion against authority when they don't get their way. And so this is two very different types of testing. And I think we see a principle play out in our homes. Uh, it plays out in your places of work. It plays out in the church. It plays out even on sports teams. Other places, but it's, it's this. It's this principle. Complaining and bitterness undermine morale. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we, I see this in sports guys. So I see this in sports teams all the time. When the team has lost 
their ear for the coach, when they stop listening, when maybe one or two players become bitter and start stirring that around, it's not long before that coach is out of there. And the same principle can apply in churches when people don't like the pastor. Same thing happens in your work when there's a complaint against an authority and a boss. Complaining and bitterness undermine authority. Or also, you could say it another way. Careless conversations compromise unity. Now, that doesn't mean you can never offer correction to someone who's in authority. But sometimes we can be really overly critical when things aren't done the way that we think things should be done. And this was Israel. They take it a step further than what happened at Meribah and at Massa, though, when they tested God in their complaining. They take it a step further in Malachi chapter 3. They go so far as to say that serving God is pointless. Look at verse 14. Here's how they have spoken hard words against God. It's vain to serve God, they said. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? These are those hard words. Now, it's possible that these were the words, these were words that were spoken by um, the, the priests, the Levitical priests. Maybe they had suffered as a direct result of the people's failure to bring in their tithes, their contributions, right? They, they kind of earned their living, if you will, from those things. And so if the people weren't bringing them, the, Israel, the, the priests there would be very destitute. They would be very hard off. And so in their eyes, perhaps, their dealings, with the sacrifices and all the work at the temple, all these things were for nothing because their basic necessities weren't even being met. So it could seem as though their efforts toward walking in mourning of offering these sacrifices of doing their duty were pointless because the tithes and the the offerings weren't coming in to support them, and so they were suffering because of it. That might be what's going on here. One of the commentaries I read offered that as a suggestion. But based on the context... And the tone of Malachi's letter so far, I'm not really convinced that we should read it that way. Remember, look back at verse 9. The whole nation is being accused of robbing God. Not just the priests, not only the people. The whole nation, the priests and the people. And now they claim they've gained nothing from serving him, from worshiping him. It's been pointless. It's been vanity. But in reality... They weren't really serving him. And this is what Malachi has shown over and over. They were simply going through the motions, checking things off their list, no engagement in the heart. And this is what he's been saying all along. Those things are come as a result of not fearing the Lord. It's obvious by how your leaders act. And fail to teach the truth, Malachi has said. It's obvious by how you offer God your leftovers in worship. It's obvious by how you're unfaithful to your spouses, by how you weary the Lord with your complaints, and by how you say it's pointless to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge and walking as in mourning before the Lord, they said. Look at what they're really saying there. Do you catch it? Here's what they're really saying. What do I gain from obedience? Right? Uh, Another way. What's in it for me? What is the point? We've seen, I don't get anything from this. We thought we were going to be a dominant, wealthy nation, they said. And yet here we are. The people around us are better off than we are. 
We're supposed to be God's chosen people. Where have you gone? What is the point? That's where Israel is at. The idea of walking in mourning is important here. It implies repentance. But can we call it repentance if we're only doing it in order to gain something? Okay, how many apologies have you heard that are nothing more than posturing and positioning in order to just kind of get what you want in a future time? Guys, that's not repentance. That's not even an apology. That's not repentance for sure. That's not walking in mourning. See, for the redeemed, this means walking in mourning means to live a life, live life in posture of humility. That's what it means to walk in mourning. It's recognizing who we are and who God is. But see, for the Pharisee, and I would say for a lot of the Israelites that Malachi is writing to, walking in mourning just means to outwardly act like you're spiritual, but inwardly you really desire to be exalted. You really want people to just think better of you. Well, if I apologize this way, then people will see it and think better of me. And that's not a real apology. That's not repentance. I read this week, one of the uh, commentaries I read said, you can do the right thing with the wrong motive and miss the point entirely. And you guys have seen it in your own life. Perhaps been guilty of it like I have. That's precisely what the people of Israel were doing here. Now this mentality had affected their actions. It had affected their words. But look at verse 15. I think this shows that it had also affected the way they thought the lens that they thought about everything, that they saw everything through. It said, and, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Their wrong way of thinking and lack of godly fear had just basically warped their view of reality. The, the, God, the, the evil, evildoers prosper? The arrogant are blessed? Look back at chapter 2, verse 17 with me for a moment. Malachi's already addressed this once. He says, you've wearied the Lord with your words by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Can you imagine someone who calls himself a Christian saying that God delights in evil? Does God delight in evil? He would cease to be God if he did. So it can't be true at all. God does not delight in evil. But that's the kind of worldview, that's the kind of lens that promotes ideas like it's useless to serve God. It's vanity. It's vain thing. Guys, you see this kind of mentality lived out every day. And it comes with questions like this. Why go to church when it's full of sinners and hypocrites? Why pray when God never answers? Why believe when you can't see any physical evidence? It's, it's pointless to serve God. You see the mindset that this is coming from? It was the mindset of Israel. But you guys see it's the mindset of many people even still today. They say it's pointless to believe in a God that you can't see, who doesn't make you immediately rich and healthy. If he can't, if you can't fix my problems like this, what's the point? This is the mindset that we see. Now, it's interesting to me that the idea of testing God comes up a couple of different times in just a few short verses here. Let me just point out how different they are. I kind of already did this. But look at 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Right? It was there that God says, put me to the test in your giving, in your generosity. Chapter 3, verse 10 talks about testing God to see how far he would go in blessing. But look at verse 15. It's a different kind of testing. This talks about testing God to see how far they could go in evil. Now you can easily see how different the motivation is behind these testings. The Christ-centered commentary is helpful. It writes this on this section of Malachi. It's critical to understand why we obey. Because if we do not understand the heart of the commands, we can follow them and still be far from God. Alternatively, we may discard them altogether and definitely distance ourselves from God. These people, talking about the Israelites, had strayed away in their attitudes and they had strayed away in their actions and God demanded a change. What change? Look at verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. What's the change that God demanded? Return to me, he said. Return to me. Repent and return to me. And there's another mindset here that Malachi references in chapter 3. A different worldview, a distinct group of people that he identifies in verses 16 through 18. And it's always a, a smaller group than the previous one. Scripture calls it a remnant, if you will. Look at verse 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So after the the naysayers have had their say, spoken their peace, the remnant speaks up. This distinct group doesn't trust in their own works and words of righteousness, though, but in the righteousness of the Messiah for their coming deliverance and salvation. So they, they hold the Lord in honor. It says in esteem. They esteemed his name. They stood in awe of him. They worshiped him as they ought. Now notice what happens when these two groups of people get together. Right? When the first group, the, the group that does not serve the Lord, when they get together, Complaining occurs, bitterness, and a warped view of reality. But when the second group, the people, those who feared the Lord, Malachi says, when they get together, what do they do? You don't see complaining, you don't see bitterness, you don't see whining. You see them talking about the Lord together. They spoke with one another about who he is, about how good he is. So one group paints the picture of how worthless and useless it is to serve and worship God, and the other group meditates on his name, esteems it, lifts it up, and then they talk to one another about him. This is a picture of the church in my mind. See, because if we're not exalting the greatness of God and speaking to one another about it, we're not being the church. This is a stark contrast between these two groups and what, what happens when they get together. This is a distinction. And the response of the Lord is also very different. We need to notice this. So the first group, he says, your words are hard against me. But what does he say to the remnant? 
Verse 16, for those who fear and esteem his name, it says that the Lord paid attention and heard them. It's almost like the small group, the, those who feared the Lord, they heard and believed God's call to return to me and I will return to you. And they took it seriously. So, okay, if this is the call on my life, then let's do it. And as a result, they get together and they talk about the goodness of God amongst themselves. Now, the idea of the Lord paying attention and hearing those who fear him is almost like, like a parent who bends down to listen to the soft voice of their child and takes note of it and attends to it. Not, they don't miss a single word that their child speaks to them. So the first group complained about the character of God. The second group complimented the character of God. You see the difference? And so this is, I made up a word, I think, for this next blank. But it's this, when you consider who God is, are you a complainer or a complimenter? I don't know if complimenter is a word, but you get it, right? Are, are you complaining about the refinement that you're going through as the Lord sits over the fire? Or are you complimenting what the Lord is doing in your life among the brethren, among the remnant? Malachi also mentions his book of remembrance. I think this, this reference implies that God keeps a record of those who fear him and who esteem his name. There's lots of examples of written um, records of things. I won't go through them all, but the one that came to my mind was in the story of Esther. I don't know if you remember the story of Esther with uh, Haman and Mordecai. And Mordecai overhears this plot to kill the king. And so he tells people about it and he, he more or less saves the king's life. And the king says to his servant, he says, hey, write this down in my book of remembrance so that I can, so that I can reward Mordecai for his service to me. Well, things happen and that never happens. The king forgets. Well, later on, the king can't sleep. And wouldn't you know it, he says, hey, buddy, read me that book. I can't sleep. Just read it to me. And where do you think he turns to? Well, it's not a coincidence. He turns to the story of how Mordecai saved him. He says, hey, did we do something for him? I said, I don't think so. And so God divinely orchestrates to where Haman, Mordecai, Mordecai's enemy, the guy who wants to kill Mordecai, actually has to submit himself and lead Mordecai in this big parade down Central Avenue in the town. And eventually is hung on the gallows he had intended for Mordecai. This shows something, though. That, that story is an example of this book of remembrance. I think the point of this is that in the coming day of the Lord, which we're going to talk about next week, in that day, the righteous will not be swept away with judgment like the wicked will. But because their names have been recorded by God in this book, they will be remembered and not forgotten. They're not going to fall asleep and forget like an earthly king and think about it later. God never forgets, and they're written down to prove it. He doesn't forget those who fear his name and speak with one another about it. He won't forget his people. Verse 17, I think, confirms this. Read that with me. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Christian, 
you are God's treasured possession. I, I can't overstate the importance that that has in the life of a believer. Just, just look at that again. You are his treasured possession. It's kind of like this. God owns the whole bank, but he puts Christians in his own personal safety deposit box. Do you get that? He owns it all, but he puts you in a special place. You are his treasured possession. Malachi 4.1 will tell us that a day is coming when the arrogant and the evildoers will be set ablaze in judgment. That day is coming. That day is to be feared. Except for those who fear the Lord, who fear His name, whose names are written in the book of remembrance, they will be safe, they will be secure, no danger. Those who fear God need not fear His judgment because Christ has already faced it for them. Verse 17 says that he is his treasured possession. He's going to gather them together and spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God will not judge, but will act with compassion toward his people, toward those who serve him. There's a, there's a distinction here. One that verse 18 points out really clearly too, but it's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. A distinction between those who fear God or those who serve God, rather, and those who do not serve Him. It's a difference between the service of a son and the service of an employer, a worker, a slave. I think about the prodigal son, and I think about the older brother. You remember this story. The younger brother uh, arrogantly asked for his inheritance early on, goes out, spends it all, wastes it, realizes, comes to his senses, realizes he had a better as just a servant in the house of his his father and goes back and in humility, broken by his circumstances, he wanted to serve his father because he knew that to be at home with the father was better than anywhere else. He knew that with his father, all his needs would be met. He also knew how undeserving he was, right? We see that when he runs, when he comes to the father, he falls on his face. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son, only a slave. But what was the response of the older brother? It's different. It's distinct. The older brother basically looks around and says, wait a second. If anybody around here deserves a party, it's me. I stuck around. I didn't run off. I stayed loyal. I didn't waste things like my little brother did. I've worked harder than anybody. I deserve this. This is a formal, more employee-like service of God that thinks in terms of what I have, what I have contributed to the business. So now my boss owes me something. That's how I think it sounded in Malachi's day. It sounded maybe a little bit more like this. You know, I do a pretty good job at keeping the law. I still bring in some sacrifices. I still do that. I was born into a covenant Jewish family. I deserve some blessing. I deserve God. I deserve this. Here's how it might sound today. I'm a pretty good person. 
I usually go to church. When I'm there, I usually give a little bit of money. I was born into a pretty good family. I deserve God's favor. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I deserve everything that's coming to me. The mindset of the little brother, the prodigal, is very different. He's had a taste of all of that. And he says, why would I want anything else? I don't deserve any of this, but my father has given it to me. He secured my place. And so there's no arrogance in the little brother. All glory goes to the father. This is the mindset that I think Malachi is getting at here. The distinction that's made. The younger brother than the older brother. I deserve this because I've worked for it. Versus, I don't deserve this, but God has given it to me. The Father has given it to me. Glory goes to Him. And so the mindset follows this path in Malachi. Fear God. Revere His name above all names. Serve Him like the compassionate Father that He is. Now I appreciate um, Woodrow Kroll. He's the founder of Back to the Bible Ministries. He says this about verse 18. The righteous remnant who have turned to the Lord and serve him will clearly be able to realize that God does not treat the wicked and the righteous in the same way. For he will sovereignly deliver the righteous and destroy the wicked. The wicked may appear to prosper, but judgment lies ahead for them. The righteous may suffer now, but a glorious deliverance for them lies ahead. And so this goes back to the idea of your perspective, your worldview, the lens with which you see things through. If it's temporary, you may be upset that you don't get the blessings you think you deserve right here and now. But if our mindset is eternal, is fixed on godly eternal things, not just the here and now, but what God is doing throughout eternity, we can say, Lord, this fire is not pleasant but I trust that you're refining me into something better in the days to come. Now look at verse 16 and 17 again. Notice there's some evidences here of being blessed by God. The fear of the Lord. They feared the Lord. This is actually a, a blessing of God. What is, you know, the poet says, he says, uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a blessing to fear the Lord. To see him in this way, to know who he is in this way, and to fear him. Second thing is that they spoke with one another. That's another blessing of the Lord. They spoke with one another. Look around. This is a blessing of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Certainly at Ramsey Creek, but churches all over the world that are preaching the gospel and living the gospel, this is a blessing to dwell together in unity in this way. Notice also that they had the presence of the Lord. Right? It says that he took notice of them. He heard them. And notice too in verse 17 that they belonged to the Lord. Man. Treasured possession. Do you belong to the Lord? Are you his treasured possession? Charles Spurgeon says, You are precious to him if he is precious to you. And you will be his on that day if he is yours today if you consider him precious to you here's a question to evaluate if you consider him precious to you do you speak with others about him in that way 
that he's precious to you? Does salvation and the grace of God permeate your thoughts and your mindset and your words and your lifestyle? If he's not precious to you, if Christ hasn't changed your mindset and attitudes, know that there is a day coming when judgment will fall and you'll not be able to defend yourself in the courtroom of God's justice and say, well, this can be excused because of fill in the blank. Our choice, our decision, our understanding and trust in Christ We can't say, well, things happened in my life that kept me from doing that. You've been given the opportunity. You've heard it today. And on that day, if it hasn't changed you, you will be rightly condemned. In that day, your knee will bow and you'll say you're right. However, we don't want you to remain there. That day is coming. But God in his patience, in this age of salvation that we still live in, the door is open. And so I want to encourage you with Psalm chapter 103, verse 8 through 13. In fact, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. This will be how we close this morning. Psalm chapter 103, verse 8. In an attempt to wake us from our slumber, in an attempt to show us that judgment is coming, but that God is faithful and merciful. Hear these words. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I'll ask the question again. Do you belong to the Lord? Do you fear him? Is he your treasured possession? And then are you his treasured possession? The Lord has made a way for you to be reconciled back to him. If that's not true of you today... He's made a way that it can be true. It's by believing in Jesus, his one and only son. And so trust in Christ today in response to such a merciful and gracious Lord. Put your faith in Jesus and be saved. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. He was talking about himself. And whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal everlasting life. And that can be yours today when you believe. Let's pray. Lord, you've pointed out through Malachi distinctions today of those who are lost and those who have been found. Of those who fear the Lord and those who do not. Of those who serve the Lord and those who do not serve the Lord. And so as Jason already mentioned, there's not a middle group. There's not a gray area in this. You are or you are not. And our our desire as a church, Lord, as those who have been saved by grace, our desire is that everyone who hears this also 
places their faith in Jesus and is saved as a result. Given eternal life that starts at the moment of salvation, the moment of their justification. So Lord, I pray that we would respond in that way today. And it might mean just sitting down and praying right there. It might mean coming up and talking with a pastor and elder. It might mean going home and considering these things more and opening the Bible and you saving us that way. Lord, I, I would pray that our hearts would be open to where you're leading them right now. And God, as, as we see the distinction, can we see ourselves, Lord, in one or the other? Serving you or not serving you? Righteous or wicked? Lord, and if we see, I think I'm wicked. I've never put my faith in Christ. Everything I've done, even the good things, is just to puff myself up, to look good. Lord, if we see ourselves in that moment, that's a grace that you've given. And I pray that we would turn by faith to Christ. It's in his righteousness alone that we are made right before you. And so we're so grateful and thankful for that work done on the cross to save all those who believe. I pray that you would grant belief and repentance today. In your name we pray, amen. If you'd like to come up and talk with me or pray more, I'll be standing up in the front on the corner here as we sing this final song together.